สำแหล่งคล่องคานสรางบันหรือทาอายุมสังขารในมนุษย์สับสัตว์ Welcome to Footnotes. Created by Francis Garrett, a professor of Buddhist studies at the University of Toronto, with Tony Scott, a PhD candidate in Buddhist studies at the University of Toronto. Footnotes is a series of short lectures on research in the field. Each episode features an article or book chapter from an academic book. We aim to make topics of Buddhist studies research freely accessible to students and the public. Hello, everyone. Greetings and salutations from inside your headphones. I hope you are enjoying a quiet walk or some time outside as I discuss the short piece, "Contemporary Buddhism: Chanting and Music," from the Oxford Handbook of Contemporary Buddhism, written by Paul Green, professor of ethnomusicology and integrative arts at Pennsylvania State Brandywine. This piece surveys the many ways that Buddhist cultures use sound, chanting, and music in their preaching, practice, storytelling, community building. Historiography, education, and rituals. Part of Green's purpose in writing this piece is not only to demonstrate the rich sonic tapestry of Buddhist life and culture, but to encourage scholars and students like you to break down disciplinary boundaries to appreciate the vital role that sound, chanting, and music play in both the experience and study of Buddhism. The music that will accompany this footnote is a Cambodian chant of the sound of Klang Kai in the Khmer language. The song, written by Lee Sovier, was one of the few liturgies composed after the fall of the Khmer Rouge, according to Trent Walker, the performer of this piece. Walker, a Buddhist studies scholar who speaks Khmer, Thai, and Vietnamese, and is an accomplished performer in his own right. Points out that the meter of this song is often reserved for translations from the Pali language, the sacred language of Buddhist texts in much of Southeast Asia and Sri Lanka. According to the translation that Walker provides on his webpage, this song covers the themes of our inescapable human mortality, the three marks of existence so central to Buddhist teachings, namely impermanence, suffering, and non-self, and the necessity of seeking liberation in the present life here and now. For one never knows the time of one's death. Green begins his piece by pointing out a contradiction between the moral code of Buddhism and its everyday reality. The seventh of the ten precepts, or moral principles for an ethical life, states that lay people advanced in their practice should refrain from listening to music, an injunction which includes going to plays or other forms of entertainment. The contradiction is that in monasteries, in religious festivals and rituals, and in the daily life of worship and practice, patterned sounds, either in the form of chanting with the human voice or that made with instruments and singing, are ubiquitous and play a crucial role in the expression of the religious life. As is true of Buddhism in general, the patterned sounds of religious life show influences from the surrounding cultures in which this religion is embedded. Hence, Buddhist sound in Nepal is influenced by and influences Hinduism. In Japan, Buddhist sound shares much in common with the sounds of Shintoism and Taoism. 
and in Myanmar, the ceremonial music used to worship spirits known as nats has also become a part of the Buddhist soundscape. As this syncretism is not just an historical phenomenon, Buddha's patterned sound has been transformed by and left its own mark on Western forms of music, whether Asian instruments are used in an orchestral setting according to equal-tempered scales, similar to how a piano is tuned, or whether chants are used in down-tempo electronica in dance clubs or Buddha bars by young, hip urbanites, perhaps not too different from yourselves. Not surprisingly, this continued growth and evolution of the Buddhist soundscape has also meant that scholarship on Buddhist chanting and music has grown rapidly, a point that Green continuously stresses. This scholarship is necessarily interdisciplinary, ranging from religious studies, Buddhist studies with a more textual approach, the field of ethnomusicology as cool as it sounds, anthropology, and area studies, which focuses on the culture and sociopolitics of specific geographical regions. This wide range can present its own problems, however, since scholars in one field might not have the expertise necessary to grasp the full import and subtleties of the Buddhist soundscape, emphasizing certain aspects while neglecting others. For example, a textual scholar examining chanting from a ritual text, say, 600 years ago in central China, might appreciate the symbolism of these chants and their connection to doctrinal tenets, but might not have a background in music theory that enables them to understand the tone, tempo, and meter of the chants, features just as important as the theoretical basis. To remedy this gap, Green calls for an integrated Buddhist musicology that brings together these different approaches, perhaps speaking directly to some budding scholars listening to this right now. The first type of pattern sound that you might associate with Buddhism is chanting. This strong association is for good reason, for as Green explains, chanting has many functions. It is a form of sonic practice that creates an atmosphere conducive to contemplation, can be a form of mindful practice, it is a group activity that creates cohesion in a community, and can even be used as a type of protective prayer or tool for making merit. Taking on an ethnomusicological approach to chanting, Green is interested in the qualities, meanings, and functions of chanting, which does not require us to understand chanting as a form of music, but as humanly patterned sound that can often develop aesthetically pleasing qualities. The fundamental function of chanting, at least in terms of the first few centuries of Buddhism, is as a medium for the teaching of the Buddha and a vehicle for the propagation from generation to generation. Indeed, before Buddhist texts were committed to writing, probably around the 1st century BCE in the island now known as Sri Lanka, vocalization was the only way to preserve the teachings of the Buddha. Hence for Green, chanting is a type of sonic praxis closely connected with memory, where the discourses and sermons attributed to the Buddha or his close disciples were memorized by generations of monks and nuns and in this way reenacted through the mouth and vocal cords. Thus, while we often understand Buddhism as a religion of the text, this was not the case in its earliest forms, and in fact, chanting is even preferred to written text in parts of the Buddhist world today, as this activity continues to play a critical role in the education of monastics and laypeople alike. Beyond education, chanting also has the power to transform both the performer and the listener, especially in the Theravada world. 
Part of this transformative potential is rooted in the nature of what is being chanted, namely the Dhamma, or the teachings of the Buddha. For instance, in the music accompanying this footnote, the sound of Klang Kaik, one stanza is translated by Walker as, Youth slips away, death's never far. Old age stalks close and can't be shaken. It answers to karma alone. The idea here is that such a sentiment, especially when chanted, has the power to stir the listener, in the words of Green, to awaken one from delusions and inspire one to take up the Buddhist path themselves. Part of this power of chanting stems from its often repetitive nature, which becomes a kind of mindful practice in its own right. Apart from the meaning of the words, however, chanting can often communicate directly with the body, so to speak, or rather, the aesthetic quality of the pattern sound, the cadence of the poly words, the interplay between the inflection and rhythm of long and short vowels, can also have a visceral and emotional impact on the listener in such a way that complements or even transcends the literal meaning and intellectual understanding of the ideas being conveyed. While the song of Klang Kaik accompanying this footnote is performed by just one person, in Buddhist culture, chanting is often a communal event, not limited to just religious rituals, but also performed at occasions like funerals and marriage ceremonies. Describing the potential of chanting to build solidarity amongst communities of nuns, monks, laymen, and laywomen, Green points out that such chants are often heterophonic in texture, meaning that while there are slight divergences in how each individual intones a chant and the pace at which they proceed, the performance does become an aesthetic whole that holds each individual's idiosyncratic sounds together in the collective expression of the Buddhist teachings. Another aspect of the communal nature of chanting is the parita, a Pali word meaning protective prayer. These prayers, which can be performed for safety from disease, misfortune, or supernatural spirits, can be chanted by a group for hours on end, even over the course of a full evening, thereby becoming an important event for a whole community bringing together ritual specialists and lay women and men who all devote their time, attention, and bodies to a singular task over an extended period. Much of Green's discussion up to this point was devoted to polychanting in Theravada Buddhism, of which the Song of Klang Kaik is one example. Moving to Tibet and Mongolia, Green notes that there are at least 11 distinct vocalization techniques, including a form of throat singing. By manipulating both throat and body muscles, this form of throat singing becomes a full body practice where a skilled performer can produce several audibly distinct pitches at once. Staying in Tibet, Green moves on to discuss a thousand-year-old form of Tibetan liturgical chanting performed together with ritual instrumental music, characterized by horizontal symbols which, in the words of Green, challenge the strength of the practitioner, strengthening mental skills and other instruments made out of human bones that together make up the Tibetan monastery ensemble. In this case, it is the instruments themselves, such as the trumpet made from a thigh bone and drums from human skulls, that shock and inspire the listener, reminding her of the impermanence of the human body, one of the three marks of existence covered in the Song of Klang Kai. Even the performers have this same experience, as the powerful vibrations of the musical instruments are said to cause bodily pain, thus invoking the second mark of existence, 
existential suffering. Though one might associate Buddhist pattern sound primarily with monks and nuns, Green next moves on to explore the role of lay women and men in the soundscape of Buddhist life. Indeed, it is often through chanting and music, rather than through textual study, that lay people first encounter Buddhist thought and practice. For instance, Green describes different caste-based associations of Nawars in the Kathmandu Valley of Nepal, who every morning in the Buddhist holy month of Gunla carry out musical processions to one of the stupas and shrines in the area, following ancient routes and creating a cacophonious echo in the valley as different groups go on their own sonic pilgrimages. These songs are learned not through musical notation, but oral tradition, constituting one of the primary forms of Buddhist education for Nawar youths, who encounter Buddhist priests infrequently in more ritual settings. In this sense, Buddhism for the Nawars and for other groups in Southeast Asia is not defined by philosophical texts or individual meditative practices, but is a music-based, body-centered path of worship and merit-making performed within a community of lay devotees who come together and form bonds with one another and their local sacred sites over multiple generations. Another way that people follow the Buddhist path is through devotional singing. Related to chanting, devotional singing is often done in the vernacular language rather than classical tongues like Sanskrit or Pali. Devotional singing is designed to be accessible to audiences without much formal training, sharing much in common with other forms of devotional singing found throughout different cultures, such as Hindu bhakti devotional acts in India. Performed either collectively or individually, devotional songs can be bought alongside more popular forms of music in different types of multimedia often leading to wide circulation, commercial success, and hybrid forms of music that combine Asian and Western instruments and styles. Like folk songs and popular forms of culture, these Buddhist devotional songs can also be sources of social critique and even political change, often becoming clarion calls for a better and more equitable society. As we finish this brief summary of Green's piece on Buddhist chanting and music, you hopefully have developed a more diverse and nuanced idea of what being a Buddhist means for communities throughout contemporary Asia. While some scholars try to reduce Buddhism down to its texts or contemplative practices, the way it is lived on a day-to-day -day basis is often through patterned sound, as transformative chanting, communal music, or as a commercial product that someone listens to on their way to school or work. This experience of Buddhism is probably less foreign to you as well, and I invite you to think of any piece of music or sound that has had an almost religious impact in your life. Did these pieces of music or pattern sound invoke an intellectual response, affect you emotionally, leave a physical impression, or all three at the same time? One of the main points of this discussion is to highlight the fact that music can channel and communicate with so many distinct facets of your being, and in this way, it is a powerful tool to capture the rich and visceral experience of learning, practicing, and living Buddhism itself. Youth slips away Death's never far
which stalks close and can be shaken. It answers to Shouts and shouts and echoes. This episode of Footnotes was produced by Tony Scott with sound editing by Jesse Witty. The Footnotes series is created at the University of Toronto in Canada with support from eCampus Ontario.